If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listeners like you through our Patreon. This episode of Green Dreamer is also supported by the Plant Your Change movement, which plants a tree on your behalf every time you use your own existing debit or credit card, simply by rounding up your change for you. Yes, we should keep pressuring the big corporations and governments to do their part and be accountable to their contributions to land degradation and deforestation. But we are at an all-hands-on-deck moment where every tree consciously planted will count, and if our change can be rounded up just a little bit once to three or four times per day for our daily purchases. Well, let's just say three times 365, we could each contribute to planting up to or more than a thousand trees just in this next year. The program collaborates with two established reforestation nonprofits, Arbor Day Foundation and Eden Projects, which we've donated to before as well. So if you want to join or learn more about Plant Your Change, you can head to greendreamer.com slash plantyourchange. This will be linked in the show notes of this episode as well, but again, it's greendreamer.com slash plantyourchange. We like to talk about the uh, converging extinction crisis of biodiversity and cultural slash linguistic diversity, two phenomena that are happening along similar uh, lines and that we think are indeed interconnected. For the finale of this fall season of Green Dreamer, we have a two-part conversation with Dr. Luisa Maffi, a pioneer of the concept of biocultural diversity, which is the intertwined diversity of life in nature and culture. In 1996, she co-founded TerraLingua, which is an international nonprofit devoted to sustaining biocultural diversity. And she currently heads the organization and edits its flagship publication called Landscape Magazine, like a combination of language and landscape, Landscape Magazine. This is a topic that I've been especially interested in and passionate about. We had talked previously with Galena of Cultural Survival about the links between language diversity and biodiversity, because cultures, just like biodiversity, are woven into the fabric of place. So it makes sense that in efforts to really understand sustainability as it applies to all the diverse landscapes around the globe, we also have to look to the diverse cultures, language, and place-based knowledge 
that have emerged from those regions, which is why, you know, looking to and honoring decentralized indigenous leadership in ecological restoration is critical. We talk about all of this in our conversation today. We also talk about the current trends of language and cultural diversity loss. What might be at stake if we continue to try to only address biodiversity loss, that ecological element of it, without at the same time preserving cultural and language diversity, the cultural aspect, and so much more. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. When I was still living in Italy and and studying at the University of Rome, I stumbled onto linguistics. I had a had never even known that it existed as a discipline. But when I discovered it, it it just made perfect sense. And I started studying linguistics. And also very spontaneously, I gravitated toward anthropology and I took all the anthropology courses that I could and found myself interested in the natural sciences and and took courses in the philosophy of science and evolution and uh, other natural science disciplines, and that just organically, I guess, formed a background for my later studies when I then decided to uh, go to the United States and uh, do a PhD in anthropology, linguistic anthropology, which combined, of course, my interest in language and culture. My uh, graduate advisor at the University of California, Berkeley, where I was studying, Brent Berlin, was one of the foremost ethnobiologists of the time. So I absorbed the interest in uh, indigenous people's knowledge about the natural world and plants and animals. And so that was another natural step for me to take. Then finally, it all came together when I was done with my PhD and I was starting to think, okay, so what am I going to do now as the next step? And I started thinking there are all these different communities of linguists, anthropologists, and biologists all talking about the loss of diversity that that was in the early 90s. And people like Ed Wilson, the the noted biologist, had been calling attention to the loss of biodiversity. And uh, linguists were talking about endangered languages. Anthropologists were talking about vanishing cultures. And uh, it just suddenly dawned on me that those were all manifestations of the loss of diversity of life on the planet, that there were probably similar causes and consequences, and that all those losses of diversity had to be interconnected. And uh, that sent me off on the trajectory that I've been on since, realizing, first of all, that that kind of integration between different lines of thinking and different disciplines would have been difficult to pursue within an academic environment. So out of a whole lot of serendipity, I ended up together with my uh, colleague, Dave Harmon, whom I met at that time, a conservationist who had been thinking along the same line, and a few others. We ended up founding an organization, Terra Lingua, which I have directed since, um, and that that was the mid-1990s. 
which is specifically devoted to research, uh, education and outreach about the interconnectedness of nature and culture, of cultural, linguistic and biological diversity. And uh, we've been doing that work ever since. Mm. So right now we're entering this anthropogenic sixth mass extinction where the rates of extinction are estimated to be a hundred to a thousand times or more higher than the natural background rate of extinction. I'm wondering yeah. what we know about the trajectory of language loss and cultural homogenization that's been happening in our recent history. Yes, yeah, so that's certainly one of the key things that, that we at Terralingua have uh, highlighted, uh, brought out and, and researched. We like to talk about the uh, converging extinction crisis of biodiversity and cultural slash linguistic diversity, two phenomena that are happening along similar uh, lines and that we think are indeed interconnected. Of course, the biodiversity of the world is of a much greater magnitude than our cultural and linguistic diversity. We, you know, linguists believe that there are about 7,000 languages spoken on the planet today and corresponding to maybe four or 5,000 different cultures. The rates of, uh, of extinction and, and the trajectory, however, is very similar to to that of uh, biodiversity, and that that was a comparison that that we did early on in the work of TerraLingua. We analyzed data about the world's languages at various points in time using existing catalogs of the world's languages, which, which list the vital statistics for the languages. That is, uh, numbers of uh, mother tongue speakers of of each language, and we we looked at how that change over time. And uh, indeed, uh, unfortunately, because of the the forces of homogenization that, that operate both in nature and in culture, the trajectory has, has been a downward one with not only outright language extinctions, where, you know, several hundred languages are documented to have become extinct, meaning having no remaining mother tongue speakers since, uh, say, the era of so-called exploration in the uh, 1400s and 1500s to now, but um, much better documented between the the, uh, 1970s and the uh, 2000s. The uh, trajectory of numbers of speakers of each of the smaller languages of the world has been a downward one, which which is, of course, the uh, canary in the, in the mind, if you wish, of language extinction. When fewer and fewer mother tongue speakers exist, uh, obviously, the danger is that over time the, the language w- uh, might become extinct. Luckily, in recent uh, years, the, there has been a strong resurgence of uh, indigenous movements, which have included, very importantly, awareness uh, within those communities of uh, language loss. And so language revitalization, bringing the language back, reigniting the fire of the languages has been happening around the world. And uh, the next study that we would like to do is a study of uh, the the effects of language revitalization and uh, the uh, reversal or the emerging reversal of that trend. 
So in biological diversity, when species go extinct, they're pretty much unlikely to return, and only time over the course of centuries or thousands of years might allow for the evolution of new species. When the last speakers of certain native languages and the last practitioners of certain cultures pass and leave this world as we know it, is it like species extinction where they can't be revived? And also, is there room for new place-based cultures and vocabulary to develop? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll answer your last question first. Language, uh, languages, and cultures develop and evolve along similar or. or although not exactly the same kinds of processes. Uh, so there is a natural process of uh, evolution and diversification of languages, in fact, in human history. The process, the tendency has been to, toward greater and greater diversification, just as in the natural world. So there's nothing to say that, in principle, new languages and, and new uh, cultures couldn't arise and develop. However, uh, the, the processes of homogenization that have become so strong worldwide are militating significantly against that. However, when uh, the last so-called last speaker of a language passes uh, away, it doesn't have to mean that uh, really that the language is extinct. In fact, indigenous peoples don't like that concept at all. And they would say the language may have gone dormant, but it is in our blood and um, it can come back. And indeed, in many cases, it is coming back through the truly heroic efforts of language activists or language warriors around the world. The languages that were on the brink are being brought back. Uh, one, one case that I am quite familiar with because it is close to home here in British Columbia where uh, I am and where Terralingua operates from, and that's the Saanich people, uh, one of the First Nations of British Columbia, who had uh, very few... Um, Mother tongue speakers left, most of them elderly, older generations. And um, back in the 1960s, they, uh, I, I guess they had an epiphany. One of the elders, uh, Dave Elliott, realized what was going on and basically took it upon himself to do whatever was necessary to reawaken the language and through documentation, through work in the community. And then shortly thereafter, the community decided to essentially take control of their education system and uh, started from there a, a process of language revitalization that has become extremely successful. They started a program of language apprentices where young adults who had not grown up speaking the language began apprentice themselves uh, with uh, the uh, fluent elders with the goal of then becoming the next generation of speakers and transmitters of the language. And uh, the program has uh, been going on for many years now, and it is uh, yielding exceptional results with, with language nests, with uh, language education in the uh, education system up to grade 12. And... Uh, the, the documentation of the language and, and the knowledge of elders, all kinds of creative programs to uh, bring the language back into uh, the home uh, within families and so on and so forth. So that's one, one example that I know well, but there are many such in, in North America and, and, and around the world uh, where 
the uh, the process of decolonization essentially among indigenous peoples has brought awareness of the way in which colonization had forced uh, assimilation, both cultural and, and linguistic, and uh, what was lost in terms of identity, of uh, self-determination, and so on and so forth. And so there's uh, a strong movement, b- both politically, uh, toward self- self-determination and uh, um, and cultural, linguistically, to, to, to bring back the language, the traditional knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. So mm. That's, I think, where we are now, and it's uh, and it's a wonderful thing to be witnessing. Young eyes, you see me dying slowly. No surprise, I see you walking away. Calls of fire burning over your head. On your mind, it's only more of the same. So we know that biodiversity loss and monocultures make ecosystems less resilient. And alongside of that, there has been a homogenization of language. And I feel like globalization has driven that and maybe accelerated that as well, because people want to be able to communicate with other people from around the globe. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you think this also makes us more vulnerable as a human collective And is it possible to develop new place-based vocabulary in the same language? Or are there certain worldviews that are embedded into the linguistics of certain languages that make the homogenization of language, even with new added vocabulary to reflect place-based knowledge, not fully as helpful as preserving language diversity itself? Yes, I would say that. A main aspect of globalization has been also linguistic homogenization. Uh, Some of my uh, linguist colleagues would call it linguistic imperialism and linguistic genocide outright. The colonizers understood very well that colonization happened in important ways through language and so went at it. And... um, it is a testimony to the resilience of indigenous peoples around the world that the languages and, and uh, cultural knowledge as much as possible remained within the communities, if uh, sometimes underground, so to speak, and uh, that reemergence is possible. But certainly the idea that, that we need a common language to, to talk to one another and that that stands in opposition to maintaining linguistic diversity has has been you know long debunked by scholars of bilingualism and multilingualism really Th- there is no uh, such contradiction between having a language of broader communication and keeping your own or your several uh, native languages as is actually the case in many parts of the world multilingualism has been the rule rather than the exception among uh, human societies for uh, for the very longest time. The idea of monolingualism, uh, one nation, one language, uh, really comes with the formation of the nation state in the uh, 1800s. 
And it's really part of uh, that ideology, but it doesn't have a uh, correspondence in the way things really work. There is no uh, contradiction between having a language of of, uh, broader communication and and, and speaking your mother tongue or mother tongues. In fact, there there is psycholinguistic evidence that uh, that gives you a... uh, a form of mental agility that is highly beneficial. And to answer your question about whether, you know, you could say the same things in, in, uh, in the language of broader communication is to some extent, yes, but to very important extents, no. And it just brings to mind an example from my own fieldwork as an anthropologist. I did research uh, among Mayan people in uh, southern Mexico I was interested in uh, their traditional medicinal knowledge or or more exactly medical knowledge, their ideas about health and illness and uh, how they uh, identified uh, diseases that they recognize in their own uh, medical system. So as a sideline to that, uh, we were also talking about traditional medicinal, plant medicinal knowledge. And uh, I was recording my um, collaborators, uh, my own collaborators in their own language, uh, speaking about uh, all this, and then working with my young Mayan principal collaborator to to translate those recordings. And he was getting very frustrated because, into Spanish, uh, which he spoke, he was getting very frustrated because he thought that his Spanish wasn't good enough. He couldn't translate the names of most of the plants that the, the elders were talking about. I had to reassure him that it wasn't because uh, he didn't know Spanish well enough, but because Spanish didn't have names for those plants. The, the Spaniards had not recognized those plants. They had not recognized their existence. They had not understood their uses. And, uh, and therefore, they didn't have names for that. That's an obvious example, but but there is so much much more um, traditional knowledge that, that is is expressed through stories, myths, legend, and, and so on and so forth. That is very deep, is spiritually profound, and uh, and that expresses concepts that are not necessarily at all present in in other cultures and and other languages. So much of that knowledge as well would be very hard to express in, in a different language. And, and, and that's why, of course, it, it matters that f- for the people themselves in the first place and for humanity at large, that we uh, maintain or re- revitalize those languages, because that's really all part of uh, our heritage, heritage as, as humanity. There are many lessons to be learned from uh, traditional knowledge and, and, and spirituality that a large chunk of humanity has forgotten. And uh, we really need to go through a major process of awakening in terms of recognizing our interdependence uh, with the natural world, that we're part of it, not separate from and dominant over it, uh, which is how, unfortunately, a lot of humanity is now thinking, which is one of the main sources, if not the main source of um, the existential crisis that we are going through today. I often feel that Western science 
traditionally at least in the name of scientific rigor, takes on really specialized lenses to understanding their fields of study, and therefore can tend to dismiss the needed contextualization of that research with the humanities, so linguistics, literature, anthropology, and so forth. So biodiversity has conventionally been studied more or less exclusively through the lens of environmental science. But what do you think have been some of environmental conservation's shortcomings or myopic solutions that are the result of a failure to understand the role of native language and cultural diversity? Or otherwise, what may be at stake if we continue to separate these supposedly synergistic elements? That's a good question. Indeed, traditionally, biology and and the sciences in general have operated in their own bubble, so to speak. Uh, So interdisciplinarity uh, and uh, particularly connection with the social and and human sciences or disciplines has uh, not been the rule. That was one of the shortcomings that really we at Terralingua set out to to address. It was also one of the main reasons why we didn't feel that we could do that research at that time within uh, the walls of academia. There, there wasn't a way to pursue that kind of uh, integration, that kind of transdisciplinary exploration and so on and so forth. So we, we chose to step out and, and do it through a nonprofit, which was really a, an unusual choice. But the, the work we did, and of course the, the work of many other people who were like-minded around the world, the, the rise of the indigenous movement for which uh, the links between language and culture and land were uh, a given, all contributed to changing the equation. And so that that form of conservation that was only science-based uh, and science-based in that uh, kind of restrictive reductionist uh, sense has slowly given way to a much more uh, integrative perspective. Uh, and and uh, the idea that for instance, conservation in the hotspots of biodiversity uh, can't be done without the full participation and, and, and the free and informed participation and, and leadership of the indigenous peoples and, and local communities who live in those hotspots of biodiversity or anywhere where biodiversity may be at risk and conservation work uh, may be happening is now much, much more uh, accepted and, uh, and and practiced. So things ha- have been changing. Uh, the, the major conservation organizations, uh, international uh, conservation organizations like the International Union for the Conservation of Nature or World Wildlife Fund uh, Conservation International all um, acknowledge this and, and have changed their perspective, although there's still a lot of work to do. And, and in, in a number of cases, the performance of conservation organizations on the ground has been, uh, to put it mildly, less than stellar. But uh, it's a process. And o- over time, th- things overall have been getting better in terms of uh, understanding that conservation is not just conservation of nature, but biocultural conservation. And we at Terralingua contributed our 
bit to uh, promoting that perspective that, you know, biocultural diversity conservation is the title and the topic of uh, one of my books, which uh, came out 10 years ago and uh, is still being read and I'm happy to say used in, in classrooms and used as a reference when it comes to integrative approaches to conservation. So I think things have changed, uh, although, as always, there's uh, more to be done. This concludes part one of our two-part conversation with Dr. Luisa Maffi of Terra Lingua, and you can look forward to part two, where we're going to continue on to discuss what it means to champion a new type of extinction rebellion, namely a biocultural extinction rebellion, how all of our current forms of political and economic frameworks from socialism, communism, capitalism, and so on all actually share a common worldview of natural resources and what they're meant for. Especially as the U.S. elections just passed, I think these are particularly interesting topics to dive into that can encourage us to think outside the box for the solutions that we need going forward. So stay tuned. Again, if you'd like to reciprocate what you've gained from the show back to us, we would greatly appreciate that as we're preparing for the next season of the show. You can either join our Patreon starting at just $2, make a one-time contribution through our website at greendreamer.com, or purchase one of our 2021 planners at greendreamer.com shop. For now, though, please take care of yourself, especially resting up as you need from the past anxiety-ridden election week, and enjoy our episode's featured song, Stay by Burn. In your eyes, you see me fighting for life. No surprise, I see you walking my way. Oh, this time I've been shining